one at 10 o'clock. So next Sunday, two services, 8 a.m., 10 a.m. The reason for that is we've been growing as a church. Our parking lot is full. We need to make space really there. And so we're getting ready. Our plan in September is to go full-time, two services every Sunday. And so in preparation for that, on Communion Sundays here starting in May, which is the first Sunday of each month, May, then June, then July, then August, on the first Sunday of each of those months, we'll have two services. So the first one is next Sunday. So next Sunday morning, 8 a.m. or 10 a.m., both services will be identical. We're offering uh, nursery in both services. Um, the grow zone, of course, normally during communion Sundays, our older kids are in the service with us anyway, so they're not affected uh, their schedule isn't really affected by it. And then the um, preschoolers, we are offering a preschool class only during the second service, not the first. So that's the parents. You can make your decision accordingly. I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I said that uh, over the course of Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, our church celebrated the salvation of Five people. Five people came to Jesus during Palm Sunday at Easter. And <clears throat> one of them is my good friend, Paul Kulikowski. And uh, come on up, Paul, Paulie. Paul, now, this to get, tell you what kind of guy he is, I literally just asked him if he would do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, see, you go, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so come on over here, Paul. Yeah, just the guy in his men's group cheering him on. Yeah. So, friends, this is Paul Kulikowski. Paul, tell us what happened on Palm Sunday. I got saved. <laughs> there he goes. He goes, yeah. Yeah. And then on Easter Sunday, what happened? I got baptized. Hey, there we go. That's pretty good. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit of the backstory? What led to your salvation on Palm Sunday? Uh, literally, I... Lost my ways when I moved back, when I moved from my hometown in Bethel to South Windsor, I lost my way. And I just felt a big connection to Jesus here when I started coming here to church and felt I needed to have my, make a bigger connection to him. And that's why I got saved. Yeah, and, and I think uh, Tara had a big part yeah, of that. Yeah, and Tara had a big part of that. <laughs> his, yeah. girl, his girlfriend, fiance. Yep. There we go. And my girlfriend and fiance, she was even looking for a church and called and said, Doug picked up the phone and said, any person that can get Paul to church is a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Even that made me feel at home because I've only known him for 10 years and he's been trying to get me since then. <laughs> so, some guys are tough cases. You got yeah, to work on them. Yep. So, it's all in the books <laughs> since then. <laughs> and then, Paul, what kind of, uh, what kind of difference has uh, Jesus made in your life since then? So, it's only been a few weeks, yeah. but what are some of the changes? One of, the one of the changes is I'm seeing 
a lot of love for him. I'm seeing uh, one of my best friends. I'm even through my Bible study class. I'm giving him Bible verses instead of him coming. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm passing the word through one class like to somebody else that doesn't really believe, but he's there and he's listening finally. He's got his ears open. Isn't that cool? I tell you what, the, the best, uh, yeah. The best uh, evangelists that the church has ever seen are those that have just newly given their hearts to Jesus, just like Paul. I love it. He's telling everybody he knows about Jesus is the best. So, and then, uh, and then the, the, the guys in our Wednesday yeah. night guys group. Yeah, well, the best, I, I can't ask for the best brothers to have at the Bible study. <laughs> They're all there for me. I'm all there for them. And they know that. And I've always said that even when I started. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah, praise God. Thanks, Paul. You're welcome. Can we just pray for you? Go right ahead. I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for what God's doing in your life. And he's got his hand on you. And um, like, like we share, we, he got a prophetic word a couple weeks ago in our, in our men's group. We, I can see God using you as a teacher, preacher. Yeah. Uh, Paul's got a powerful story. There's more to this story that, uh, that you haven't even heard yet. Yeah. And... Um, God's going to use that. So, Lord, we want to thank you for our brother, for your new brother, Jesus. Jesus, you're the one. You came in search of Paul. You didn't give up on him when he strayed and wandered around. Jesus, you were faithful. You stuck with him. And we thank you, Jesus, for all that you did to bring Paul to this place today. Thank you for the great, the great work that's going on in his heart. And we pray now, God, that, uh, that Lord, that, um, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen him. We pray, Lord, that his, that his roots in Christ would become really just established and go deep, Lord. That he'd be a deep man of God, a deep man of God. And uh, we pray, Lord, your protection over him, and we pray your blessing on him. And I, I thank you for my brother. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Paul. You're welcome. Bless you, man. I just love that. It's great. I love, what, I love to watch God at work in people's lives. I tell you, that's the, the blessing that I have as a pastor is I get the box seat <clears throat> in people's lives. And it really is true. It really is. It's amazing. We're going to be in... Um, the book of 1 Kings chapter 21, and you have plenty of time to look it up, but I'm giving you that now as a forewarning. 1 Kings chapter 21. You know, we try our hardest to make a name for ourselves, whether it's getting good grades in school 
and being the person with the best GPA at school or whether it's being the guy with the biggest paycheck at work or the best title at work or the sales trophy at work or, we, or maybe it's I'm breaking all the records on the soccer team or the track team or whatever it is. We, we try to, we do these things to try to make a name for ourselves. But you understand God has already given you his name? Ephesians chapter 3, it says this, and this is not in our notes, so Nathan, this is extra, so you're not going to see it back there, buddy. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God has given you his name. What I think is cool is that we all start with that. And then what we do with it either changes the reputation or keeps the reputation, maintains it. I don't know how I'm... Let me just start with my notes. So I, I, I get in danger when I go off my notes. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1. It says this, a good name is more desired than great riches. What's the good of being super wealthy if you're an idiot? Think about it, that's really what he's saying. Um, your name is your reputation. Your name, it takes a lifetime to build up a good name and it can be ruined in a heartbeat. This morning, we come to the ninth commandment. We've been in this series on the Ten Commandments for a little while now, so we're at number nine, so that gives some of you hope. You know we're almost done with this series. The ninth commandment, only one more to go, which the ninth commandment says this, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, I have to confess something to you that I always thought in my life, I always thought that do not lie was one of the Ten Commandments. You ask me, hey, what are the Ten Commandments? Okay, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder. Isn't that typically how you might answer it? And yet, do not lie is not one of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number nine specifically says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. In other words, this is not about lying to your neighbor. It's about lying about your neighbor. I think that's fascinating. Because God has put a commandment in the Ten Commandments. What we've been learning about God's heart in this series is that God, God values these things that we consider valuable in our lives. Like, like last week, or two weeks ago rather, when we looked at Eighth Commandment, do not steal, we learned that God actually values your stuff. And so he has put this commandment in place saying, hey, nobody else can touch your stuff. Your stuff is your stuff. And and it's valuable because you think it's valuable. And then here in the ninth commandment, God is actually saying, look at your reputation is valuable. And God is defending. Isn't that something? The God of the universe is defending your reputation in the ninth commandment. He says, I don't want anybody to mess up anybody else's reputation. 
Now, sometimes we all, sometimes we ruin our own reputations. We all do stupid. And so, so that's different. I, I, I mean, I can ruin my own reputation, and that's sad, but you can't ruin my reputation. That's the ninth commandment. It's interesting to me that in the third commandment, if you remember back in Exodus chapter 20, we looked through this, the third commandment, God says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So don't, we're supposed to honor the name of God. And here in the ninth commandment, we're not supposed to take the name of anyone else in vain either. So God has placed a real high value on on your reputation, on, on your name. I think that's interesting. When God created the first man, Adam, he made him out of the dust of the ground, dirt. Adam was made out of dirt. So we're made from dirt, but we're not supposed to treat one another like dirt. Because though we've been made from dirt, we also have something else. We have the breath of God. You and I are made from dust and breath, and not dust alone. And it's this breath of God in your lungs and mine that gives each one of us intrinsic and infinite value. It's this breath of God that makes each one of us worthy of respect, even if we don't do things that are very respectable. And oftentimes we confuse that. Because we will withhold respect from someone because of their behavior, as though somehow we're judge and jury. We say, oh, I, don't, I, I lost my respect for that person. Well, why? Because they did X, Y, Z. Well, listen, we all do things that are not respectable. But, my, but your respect for a person doesn't come from their behavior. It comes from this basic truth that the breath of God fills their lungs. They're made from dust and breath. That's what makes a person respectable. And these Ten Commandments teach us that, that you know, we honor God, so we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first four commands. But we also honor one another. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the last six commands from the Ten Commandments. The Apostle John puts it this way. He says, this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, the next verse. He says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if I can't love you and I see you, How can I love God who I can't see? And in short, I literally love God by loving you. God takes it personally. God says, if you want to demonstrate your love for me, love others. You you love the people I put in your life. We demonstrate our love for God by loving other people. I honor God's name. I honor God's reputation by honoring yours. And I recognize that you actually have God's name. He's given his name to you, like the scripture says. And that's what I'm respecting. That's what I'm honoring. 
in you, and you honor it in me. See, God is protecting the value of our reputations, and he's telling us, hey, don't give false testimony about your neighbor against your neighbor. Slander. And one of the things we've caught as we've gone through these Ten Commands is how much in our own culture as Americans we have strayed from these basics. And we've talked about that, that these are moral commands, and moral commands are like an invisible backbone in life, just like just like the laws of physics are there. I can't see them, but I'm bound to them. Jump off the building and you'll discover you're bound to the law of gravity. It's a physical law. Moral commands are the same way. They're, they're laws that God has built into, into uh, life. And what we see is when you violate those laws, there are consequences that come as a result. It's not like God punishes you. It's just, it's more a cause and effect kind of thing, that God has created life to work a certain way with these morals in place. And when we break them, we get hurt. And we've seen in our culture and in our nation these days how as a nation we've really strayed from these 10 very basics that God has laid out for us. And you can see how slander has reached a fever pitch in our nation these days, has it not? You can't turn on the TV, you can't turn on news without being bombarded by lies and slander and innuendos and filtered messages. I mean, it's the tabloid industry, the tabloid industry. Do you know that they, they specialize, of course, in uh, tantalizing gossip about the celebrities and who had Sasquatch's baby and that sort of thing? Do you know that these guys are making $3 billion a year? That's the, that's the annual take-home of tabloids in our nation. So in other words, uh, we are actually paying $3 billion a year to read false testimonies against celebrities. Makes sense. The Bible says this about that. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, 8, it says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. We sort of feast on it. We love, give me, the, give me the skinny, give me the dirt. I like that. We pay $3 billion a year to get it. Every day, we have political parties seeking to gain the upper hand by destroying the other political party. We have the cause of women being elevated by destroying the reputation of men. We have the cause of black Americans being elevated at the cost of white Americans. We, we see the cause of illegal immigrants being elevated at the cost of legal citizens. It seems like it's the only thing that our world without God knows how to do. The only way that they know how to strengthen one group is to weaken another. You see, only in Jesus... Only in Jesus can we elevate everybody at the same time. It's the truth. Because at the cross, we're all the same. At the cross, see, we come to the cross and we all realize 
hey, I'm a bonehead, you're a bonehead, we all need Jesus. Boom, now we're on the same level, and he's elevating all of us. But if you remove Jesus out of the picture, which our culture has done, and all that they know how to do without that is, well, let's run down this group in order to build up that group. And you friends, it doesn't work. It reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. You see what that says? It says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And as a nation, we are destroying ourselves. We're imploding with slander. We're being ripped apart. I just looked up some facts this week about cyberbullying because I had heard that, that there are kids that have committed suicide because they've been bullied online on social media and it caught my eye, so I thought I would do a little bit of research, and I found some interesting things. One site said that 34% of students in school experience cyberbullying, 34%. That's a third. And this form of bullying, it extends beyond physical threats, like I'm going to beat you up after school. That certainly is one form of bullying, but cyberbullying tends to go more from that into personal attacks. It's, it's into slander. It's, it's false testimony is what it is. Tell, telling the dirt, spreading rumors, dark rumors, dirty rumors, exposing secrets about kids um, as a way to blackmail one kid over another. 30% of kids, 30% of kids, so 34% experience cyberbullying, 30% of those kids um, actually turn to self-harm as a way to cope with the pressures, and 10% of them have actually attempted suicide. It's crazy. It, it's sad. In other words, the result of slander and the result of violating this ninth command, it literally is killing people. I don't mean to sound old, but, but like when I was a kid, I know that sounds old, I, I had to deal with a couple of bullies. I did. I was in second grade, and there was this kid in sixth grade that beat me up in the park one summer day. And he roughed me up. I, mean, I say beat me up. He roughed me up. I came home dirty with some grass stains on my back, that kind of thing. But I, I came home. I remember I ran home crying and I was scared. I'm in second grade, I was little. And my mom's response was, take a bath. It'll make you feel better. So my mom drew me a bath, and that was the solution to getting beat up in the park, was to take a bath on a summer day. Something about the bath just washed all the problems away, I guess. But the, but the thing is, is that, see, I could escape it. I could sit in my bathtub, the bully was out there, and I've escaped him. Now the bully, the kids carry him on their phones in their pockets. The bully goes with them everywhere they go. They can't escape him. And the pressure is intense. It's why parents, one of the things that you need to do, moms and dads, is limit your child's access to the smartphone. To the end. You have to because they, they just need a break. They, they need to go outside and get some grass stains once in a while on their knees. Just, just, just get a break 
from all of the stuff that's going on on social media. Proverbs 25, verse 18, it puts it this way. Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. And as any victim of bullying can tell you, any victim of slander can tell you, maybe you've experienced it at the office. A lot of corporate culture these days has to do with one-upmanship and I, I, I In order to beef up my own portfolio, I talk about all the mistakes of this guy over here. Maybe you've experienced that. As anybody who's experienced slander knows, it's like a punch in the gut, like a club or a sword. It hurts. You know, in ancient Egypt, I learned this this week, in ancient Egypt, someone who was found guilty of slander, of giving false testimony, they would cut off their nose and their ears. That's a pretty good deterrent. For the rest, it wasn't enough to kill them. Just for the rest of their life, everybody knew what they did. It's right on your face. In ancient Rome, if you were found guilty of giving false testimony, you were thrown off the Tarpeian rock. You were put to death. So these ancient cultures actually understood the devastation of slander, and they didn't tolerate it. The Bible doesn't recommend throwing people off rocks if they slander. But here's what James chapter 5 verse 9 says. It says, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So God takes it personally. God himself comes to the defense of one who is slandered and being falsely accused. He takes it personally. Remember, We wear God's name. In slandering that person's name, you're slandering God's name in that person. We honor God's name by honoring the names of others. Jesus actually raises the bar of expectation on this, as Jesus usually does. And he takes it to a whole deeper level. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says these words, These get me every time. He says, but I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for how many careless words? How many careless words? Every Every careless word they have spoken. I don't know about you, friends, but I've uttered a few careless words in my day. May the Lord forgive us. May the Lord have mercy on us. Why do we do it? Can we talk about that for a second? Why? Why do we feel the need to talk about other people's dirt? Can we ask that? I just want to actually ask that. That's a, this is a group question. It's not a rhetorical question. I was hoping you would answer it for me. What, why do we... Why do we do this? What, what would motivate us to say negative things about other people when they're not around? Go ahead, Sam. Speak it out real loud, though. Pride. Pride, Pr- pride is a big one. Yes, ma'am. Our life looks better when others Absolutely. It makes me look better if I can make you look worse. Yeah, it does. Yeah, poor self-image. 
Actually, it does. Hmm? Yeah, we get jealous, envy. What else? Go ahead, Brent. It does, doesn't it? We feel powerful. That's what he says. It makes us feel powerful if we do it. Yeah. Any, any other good? These are all good. You're right. Anybody else? I'm not looking for anything particular. I'm just, it's literally a discussion question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? It covers up my sin if I can talk about yours. Yeah, it's fascinating. I don't know, it's, but it's a farce, isn't it? Because we think that these, we think that it will build us up, but it really doesn't build us up, does it? In fact, my own reputation gets torn apart if I get a reputation for the guy that's always talking about other people. So it might, I might think that somehow I'm building up my own resume. I'm actually tearing it down. Imagine if we were known as people who defended and guarded the reputation of others. Now, that's a good reputation to have. Actually, Karis and I were talking about this last night because I have to confess that this is a message that is very personal for me. God's been convicting me on this. A lot, a lot. It's been a rough week. And um, one of the things that I've realized that the, the Lord's been showing me is this, when I'm, is that, is that if, when I'm, when I'm with you, let's say I'm looking at Keith here, when I'm with you, Keith, I need to be with you. I need to be fully present with you. And to be fully present with you means I don't really need to talk about the four other friends because they're not here. In this moment, it's me and Keith. It's me and my brother. So can we be present with one another together in this conversation without having to bring in five other people that we're talking about? Does that make sense? I feel like one of the things the Lord showed me is it's a way that I can love the person that I'm with. And that it's actually unloving to be with someone and be talking about the five people that aren't there. Because I'm ignoring the very person that's right in front of me. So the Lord's just been really convicting me on that. And I've been endeavoring, bringing myself under discipline to say, nope, when I'm with you, I want to be with you. And 100% present with you. And give the person that I'm with the gift of me. Yeah, you might go, please bring five other people, please. <laughs> so Exodus, chapter, Exodus chapter 23, verse 1. It says this, do not spread false reports. James chapter 4, verse 11 says, brothers, do not slander one another. I like how Leviticus chapter 19 puts it. Leviticus 19, verses 15 and 16. It says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I like this because sometimes we're tempted to let 
to look the other way when a poor person does something because they're poor. We feel bad. And so we want to let them off the hook. And then we definitely love to kiss up to the rich. We're all guilty of both. And here scripture says, look at, hold each person accountable for their actions. Judge fairly, it says. So because someone's poor, don't let them off the hook. Because someone's rich, don't look the other way. We, sh we don't shade the truth to let someone off the hook, and we don't shade the truth to hang them either. So if you commit a crime, or if you do something wrong, it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are, you committed a crime. And it doesn't matter what color you are, you committed a crime. And it doesn't matter how famous or powerful you are, you committed a crime. And regardless of what the crime was committed, we don't slander one another's character. We're supposed to deal with the behavior. We're judging the behavior, not the character. Does this make sense? We're, we're looking at the action, not the heart behind the action. The truth is, none of us know the heart behind the action. The Bible says, I don't even know my own heart. So how can I possibly know yours? All we can do is judge the, the fruit, not the root. So let me point us just to a biblical example as we come to a close here this morning. I, first Kings, now we're in First Kings chapter 21, just a, a Bible story. And I love this story because it's very easy to remember. But it also illustrates for us from a negative side why slandering is so dangerous. In this example, slander literally got a guy killed. And so 1 Kings chapter 21, I'll start with verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Now, on the surface, that sounds like the king is making Naboth a good offer. I'll, I'll trade you. However, he really wasn't. Do you know how in the Bible you read every once in a while those lists of names and they bore you to tears? Begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, and you know, If you were an ancient Israelite, that list meant everything to you because that list meant that you owned, physically owned a piece of the promised land. And that promised land came to you from God. That promised land is your inheritance, and you own it. So if you were an ancient Israelite reading that list, you are scouring it for your name to make sure your name is on it. Because if your name is on it, that means you've got a piece of that pie. And if your name is not on that list, you're out to lunch. You don't have a piece of the pie. Follow that? So owning that piece of land is critical. And the king comes to Naboth and he says, hey, why don't you um, give up your piece of the land? So while on the surface it looks like the king was offering him a good deal, he really wasn't. 
And here's Naboth's response. Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. See? Naboth, this comes from my great, 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 great granddad, and it's been in our family, all that. There's no way. I, I can't possibly give that up. So Ahab went home. I love this. Ahab's a piece of work. Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. The king is pouting. Verse 5, his wife Jezebel came to him, and she asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Whew. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city where with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And that's what happened. So do you see what's going on here? Naboth is a completely innocent man. He's a noble man. He's a good guy. And simply because he had a vineyard, he had a piece of land that the king wanted, it put him in the crosshairs of wicked Jezebel. And she actually hires two guys to speak falsely against him, to accuse him of blasphemy, that he cursed God, and to accuse him of treason, that he cursed the king. That's a double whammy. Blasphemy and treason, that gets a guy instantly put to death. And it did. So Naboth is killed based on slander. It's a gross abuse of power, obviously, Jezebel the queen has these two guys speak falsely against him. Naboth falsely accused, wrongly put to death so the king can have his land. It's horrible, but are we doing any better? Look in our culture, friends. Is our culture in America doing any better these days? We have kids dying because they're bullied online. We've ruined careers based on lander, slander and lies and innuendo? Or how, how about the church? Are we doing any better? Why do we think it's okay to speak negatively about certain Christian leaders? What gives us the right to do that? Since when is that my place? Why don't we try something? Church. Let us begin honoring the ninth commandment. And instead of assassinating the character of others, let's actually defend it. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Wouldn't it be nice to turn on your TV and find a, a Democrat who praises a Republican? 
or a Republican who praises a Democrat? Like, wouldn't that be really a breath of fresh air? That might be a pipe dream. But friends, the dream can come true right here in the church. We don't need to wait for them to do it. The church of Jesus can practice it. One more scripture, and then I'm just going to wrap it right up, okay? I promise. Actually, worship team, if you want to prepare, that would be great. But Psalms chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. The psalmist asks this question, and then he answers his own question. His question is this, who may dwell in your sanctuary? And in, in other words, what he's asking is, God, who can enjoy your presence? Would you like to enjoy the presence of God in a fuller way? Anybody want that? You say, oh, I'd love to experience God. Oh, that'd be so awesome. That's what the psalmist is asking. Who can enjoy the richness and the fullness of God's presence in their life? And then he answers this question. And in the answer, and there's more to it than this, I admit, but I wanted to focus on this. He who has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, and casts no slur on his fellow man. That word slur really catches my eye because it seems to cover the whole gamut. A slur, an innuendo, maybe a little joke, maybe a little sarcastic comment. It's a slur. It's a slur. It raises the bar. Perhaps the reason why God feels far away sometimes is because I'm slurring the very people that he loves. And God can't be a part of that. Is it possible that I can enjoy a greater expression of God's presence if I simply would guard the reputation of others and start right here in the house of God? Married people, let me apply this a little bit. Married people, can you imagine your marriage without slurs? Ladies, you're out with the girls and you start comparing notes about your husbands and he does this and doesn't do this and doesn't do that and da da da. Slurring. Can you imagine husbands not talking about the quote ball and chain, the little lady or the whatever? Imagine your marriage without slurs. And husbands and wives, wouldn't it be an awesome thing if you were to commit to one another, actually verbally commit to one another face to face? I promise you that when we are not together, when I'm out with the other people and you're out with other people, I promise you that I will guard your reputation with all of our friends and family and people who know us. I promise you. I wonder what kind of impact that might make in your marriage. Or kids, could you imagine what would happen if you stopped slurring your mom and dad? If you actually began to praise your parents? Parents slur their children. We do it. We do it when we compare notes. When your kid does this, your kid does that. My kid does You know, my kid Slur. What if we were to agree that in our homes we would put this aside and make our homes uh, places where we praise one another instead of slur one another? 
Or can you see how it might improve your workplace environment? Everybody else is working to one-up the others, and you're the one person in your office that actually sings the praises of your coworkers. Man, that guy's awesome. You should see her at work. Woo, she does that. He does that. She's awesome there. You're the one person praising your coworkers. Imagine the difference that could make in your office. Imagine it. Imagine the difference it could make in your school. I know some of you kids, you stand up, you've stood up for kids that have been bullied. That's awesome. I, I applaud you. You're awesome. Because doing so risks your own reputation at school. But keep going. You're standing on the side of God when you do that, and he's with you. Imagine a school where the kids praise each other. Can you imagine what Facebook would look like or Instagram would look like or Twitter would look like or whatever social media would look like if we actually used them as vehicles to praise one another? Wow. So let me make it clear. I want to just clarify something very quickly as we close, and that's this. What I'm... What, what I'm not saying is that we overlook sin. That's not what I'm suggesting. If someone does something wrong, they've done something wrong. And, and the people in authority need to handle that in the appropriate ways. I'm not at all suggesting that we just pretend like everything is wonderful. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. What I'm saying is that we need to make certain that we guard the reputation of others. That if someone does something wrong, we address the behavior and we don't judge the heart. I, I don't want to be defined by my screw-ups. And you don't want to be defined by your screw-ups either. So let's give each other the respect of that. I, I won't define you by your screw-ups, but guess what? We all screw up. So there we go. Got that on the table. So now I can protect your reputation and you can protect my reputation and we can help each other deal with our screw-ups. But I don't give false testimony for sure. I defend your reputation. So let us, as we close this morning, determine and commit ourselves to protecting the reputations of at least the people that we know and those that we don't know whether we agree with them or not. I don't have to agree with you to defend your reputation. Right? So let's commit ourselves to that this morning, okay? So Father, I want to thank you that once again you have displayed your heart in these Ten Commands. You have, <laughs> you have uh, raised the value of my reputation. Thank you. Because I really never thought it was all that great to begin with. But God, you have actually said, no, I defend your reputation. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. And so, Lord, I return that this morning by saying I commit myself to defending and guarding the reputation of others, whether I know them or not, whether I agree with them or not. I will defend and guard their reputations. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And I also ask you, Father, forgive me because I have 
I have uttered a lot of careless words. And I ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing. Forgive me, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can we stand and sing? And I want to open our altar. Uh, You know, if you're like me and you say, "Uh, I have also been known to cast a few careless words in my day, and you'd like to deal with that this morning, come on up with me and let's pray. Let's give that to God today, okay? Let's deal with it. And let's uh, determine today that, well, I'm going to commit myself to defending the reputation of others instead of tearing it down. And maybe there's something else that's on your heart. That's fine, too. You don't have to come just about that. But come on up. We want to pray together and support you in prayer here, okay? So as we sing, you come.